You're about to hear my conversation with Shane Feeney. Shane is Managing Director and Global Head of Private Equity Secondaries for Northleaf Private Capital. That's the group that manages the McKenzie Northleaf Global Private Equity Fund. We talk all about the private equity market as a whole. We also talk about where he's seeing opportunities and how he thinks about evaluating private equity managers in general. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schner, and I'm delighted to be here with Shane Feeney. Shane is the Managing Director and Global Head of Private Equity Secondaries for Northleaf Capital. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here, Matt. Shane, why don't we start with a few questions about yourself or, or learning a little bit about yourself. Uh, tell me, how did you become Managing Director and Global Head of Secondaries at uh, Northleaf? Oh, well, I've been in the, the private equity industry now for almost 25 years. I, I won't go all the way back, but sure. um, after, after doing an MBA over in Europe, um, I started really started my finance career in earnest in London, England. I spent a couple of years in investment banking um, and then moved over to the buy side, uh, mm. private equity. Um, in sort of the late nineties and, um, had a sort of 13 career, 13 year career working in, in London, um, in, in, in the private equity industry. Um, and then in 2010, um, my wife and I decided it was, it was time to come back to Canada. So we, uh, we moved back to Toronto right. and I joined, uh, the Canada pension plan investment board or CPPIB. Um, just at a time when CPPIB was really moving much more aggressively into direct investing, hmm. in particular in alternatives, of which private equity uh, was was the largest, I think, asset class within the alternatives or private markets um, um, segment, and spent uh, 11 years at CPPIB, uh, 11 fantastic years, um, most recently uh, had the honor of leading our, our private equity business globally. And then uh, back in 2021, after after 11 great years there, just decided it was time for a, a fresh challenge. <laughs> and um, knew the North League team, knew the culture, uh, knew where the firm was, what, what it was doing, where it was going. And so um, came on board in 2021. Uh, so I've been here roughly two years now. Thanks for walking through the background. Certainly a bit of a storied career, I guess, as you move from Europe uh, back to, to Canada uh, with CPPIB, a well-known player in uh, the direct uh, alternative investing. I'm curious, uh, over your 25 years, can you tell me about the private equity sort of asset class as a whole? Uh, I think generally speaking, my perception has been that it's been very strong uh, for the majority of those 25 years. Is that correct? And, and maybe qualify it for me a little bit. Yeah, well, the the private equity industry has had a um, a great run. Um, I, I I sometimes hear people use the expression "supersizing," um, and it has grown very strongly. Even if you just look back at two thousand and seventeen, for instance, um, private equity uh, net asset value or assets controlled by private equity funds was roughly two billion. Um, and you know today it's it's close to six billion. 
Um, so there's just been significant growth in the industry, a lot of innovation. You know, we've we've seen funds, you know, twenty billion dollar plus mega funds get raised. Um, so it's you know it's it's changed a lot, really through right. growth. But I think the common denominator, you know, through the years has really been. Um, you know, attractive, both absolute and relative, relative to public markets outperformance um, and an asset class that provides a lot of diversification uh, in addition to attractive returns and, and less volatility uh, in, in, in investors' portfolios. I think that's why we've seen certainly so many large capital allocators, um, you know, move pretty aggressively into the asset class um, over the years. That's great, Shane. Um, maybe as we sort of go through the private equity landscape, I'd love your perception on uh, both what's grown per- perhaps um, most rapidly as well as return expectations or some of those characteristics. But private equity is sort of a blunt uh, asset class. Maybe we can spend some time dissecting what private equity is in the various components. Uh, and just as a, as a, I think a correction, you, you said it grew from two billion to six billion. I bet you it's trillion. Trillion, yeah, correct. Trillion, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Order of magnitude off only. But yeah, maybe we can go through and, and really define those different components of private equity at the highest level, and you know some of the the characteristics that we can expect from each of those sub asset classes. Yeah, so I mean, maybe just stepping back, um, you know. I often, or we often get asked, you know, what enables private equity to do this? What's what's the secret sauce for private equity um, that's kind of enabled these great returns to be to be generated over you know a long period of time? And I would point to a couple things, um, and this would be true across the different segments of P, which I'll talk about in a minute. But you know, I think P private equities fundamentally, when you boil it down, it is about making businesses better, um, you know, in, a, in strong alignment with um, the underlying sort of portfolio company um, management team. So kind of the, the image of private equity kind of asset stripping and, um, you know, laying off, you know, thousands of people. I'm not saying that never happens. But, but really, that's you know, not what private equity is about. It's about right. trying to buy a good business and make it even better. And I think part of the secret sauce in private equity, in my eyes, is really the governance model that exists where private equity funds or what we call general partners um, who, who buy and control assets um, you know, can work very closely and intensively with, with management teams. And they really do control all the material decisions. Um, so you might say the age, some of the agency issues uh, that you hear about in public companies, you know, um, are, are, are reduced. Um, and the, the financial incentives are also very aligned, whereby, you know, an underlying management team of a private equity-owned business really, um, you know, makes its capital gain when the private equity fund exits the company. So there's very strong alignment uh, between, you know, investors in private equity funds, the general partners and the underlying portfolio uh, uh, management teams. Um, In terms of the different kind of segments of private equity, I think you asked about, um, generally speaking, there's broadly three main segments um, within private equity. There's what's commonly referred to as the buyout segment. 
So there we're referring to um, um, investments in very mature or more mature cash generative businesses that are able to handle some debt or some leverage. Um, this is the largest segment within private private equity. So when you think of funds like KKR, Blackstone, just to name a name a few, Apollo, some of these big mega funds that people may have heard of, um, you know, it's their buyout buyout funds uh, that are often sort of in the press for you know acquiring very large companies. Right. Um, there's also the growth segment and the venture capital segment. Um, the maybe go to the venture capital segment first. This is dealing with, and there's different stages even within VC of pre-seeds, uh, seed, you know, series A, B, C, et cetera. But um, generally you're dealing with, um, you know, younger businesses uh, that don't have a long track record. Sometimes they have revenue, usually they have revenues, uh, but, but typically are still pre-cash flow break even but growing very quickly. And then the growth segment fits somewhere somewhere in between uh, the venture capital and the buyout segment. And within the growth segment, you're typically still seeing companies with very high top line growth rates, often still valued off a multiple of revenue. Sometimes they're positive cash flow, um, sometimes not. Um, but, you know, getting getting closer to that uh, more mature, more mature stage. Within, in terms of ways to access private equity, maybe I'll mm. just touch on that briefly. Yeah, that'd be great. This, this will also kind of dovetail into to our investment strategy here. But you generally, I think of it as just three um, primary avenues um, to, to access the um, uh, asset class. One is um, to invest in private equity funds. So... Uh, general partners or private equity funds raise, you know, pooled vehicles from different investors. Typically, every you know three to four years, they will raise a fund, and that fund will then go on to make you know investments into private companies. So you can invest in one of these funds. Um, the other way is through uh, direct co-investments, where you're able to invest alongside one of these general partners directly in a in a in a company. Um, typically for a more passive minority stake uh, when we refer to kind of co-investments or, or direct investments. Um, and then the third segment is what we call secondaries. Uh, and this is a, a major focus for, for our private equity program here at Northleaf. And really when you think of secondaries, think of um, the acquisition of more mature private equity positions um, that are already under uh, a private equity funds sort of control. So the easiest example is if a, a pension fund is an existing investor in a large private equity fund like Blackstone, and they decide for whatever reason uh, that they want to anchor um, sell their um, commitment in that fund. It's obviously in a liquid commitment. Um, there's no stock exchange where they can turn to to sell that position. But they can turn to the secondaries market um, to try and to try and get liquidity or sell their position, and right. so the secondaries market uh, uh, can be very active. Uh, it certainly is now, and maybe we can touch a bit on that later. That sounds great. Uh, yeah, let's come back to to the market dynamics now, and I just want to stick with Northleaf for a second. 
Um, you sort of uh, laid out the different types of uh, private equity, the different types of ways that you can access that and that you deal a lot in secondaries uh, in general. Maybe walk through Northleaf's capabilities within that private equity space. Give us a sense for some of the history and, and how you think about investing and approaching that space. Northleaf is a private markets um, alternatives manager. We're headquartered uh, here in Toronto. We have nine offices throughout the world. Uh, we do infrastructure, credit, and private equity. Maybe just to start at the, the highest level, we have sure. 20, $25 billion of cumulative commitments raised since inception. Um, within private equity, it's actually our longest standing asset class. We have a 20-year history uh, of, of, of investing in private equity. One of our defining characteristics across everything we do is really a focus on the mid-market. Uh, so we are very mid-market focused. So although I was using names earlier like Blackstone and KKR, uh, we tend uh, not to um, uh, play in that sort of mega space. For us, it's much more you know mid-market focus, which we would kind of define as underlying fund sizes between 500 million and then at the very upper end, seven and a half billion. Uh, most of where we would focus would be in that sort of fund size range of uh, you call it one to one to five billion. Um, within private equity, um, we have, as I mentioned, a twenty-year history of investing in the mid-market. Uh, we have a global team within private equity, so we have investors on the ground uh, here in Toronto, uh, also in London and New York. And we sort of run, you know, what I'll refer to as a hybrid model. It's actually very uh, similar to when I was at CPPIB, obviously the scale's a bit different, but we invest uh, really across the three the three transaction types I mentioned earlier. We have a very long-standing uh, and deep uh, fund investing program uh, that really dates back to when Northleaf was still part of TD Bank. Uh, it spun out in 2009. Uh, so we've been making fund commitments uh, to mid-market private equity managers or GPs now for, for 20 years. So we've developed a very deep, deep network uh, across uh, North America and Europe specifically. Um, we do secondaries. That's actually our largest single sort of strategy uh, by AUM. Uh, so we're very active in the secondaries market. And then we have a very active co-investment business or direct investing business as well, uh, which, is, as I said earlier, is really taking minority, uh, slightly more passive stakes alongside uh, private equity funds um, in, in, in mid-market transactions. That's great. Good uh, good sort of overview of the history and in, in the different segments that you're in. Maybe sticking with co-investments and secondaries where you spend, it sounds like, most of your time. Uh, how do you approach those uh, markets and do you approach them in sort of the same fashion? Uh, and I guess um, maybe some questions specifically on secondaries on, you know, why are these people motivated to sell and how do you judge the opportunities uh, just in general? We think that our approach of having all three strategies. And in addition, I mentioned earlier, we have a credit strategy where our credit business is lending to mid-market sponsors. Really is powerful because it's a very integrated model, sometimes referred to it as sort of a flywheel effect, where kind of all four strategies um, kind of act or have synergy between them and really allow us to go to the market uh, with a kind of one-stop shop uh, a solutions approach when we're, we're speaking to private equity, private equity funds and advisors in, in, in the mid market. 
Um, we think the flexibility uh, that we bring across these different different strategies uh, and even within secondaries, um, I probably uh, don't want to get into all the detail on this podcast today around all the different types of secondaries, but um, there are many different liquidity solutions that can be provided. Uh, which are broadly defined as secondaries. And we, we, we tend to have a very flexible mandate. Um, so we are looking at, you know, all types of different secondary transactions, which we think is very, very valuable. In terms of how we approach uh, the different types of underwriting, I mean, there are some common threads across everything we do. We're very focused on quality. Um, so we're, you know, we're looking to work with high quality or alongside high quality GPs or private equity funds, fundamentally investing into high quality companies. Uh, so our investment strategy, for instance, is, is, is not really paid to, you know, buying things at deep discounts that might be, you know, lower quality. I'm not saying that can't work for some people, but it's just not, 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 not what we do here. Um, the, the, the underwriting approach will, will sort of differ between making a fund commitment, a secondary transaction, and a direct co-investment. Um, um, you know, on a direct co-investment or certain type of secondary transactions where sometimes there can only be one asset, um, you know, we can go much deeper in terms of the asset underwriting um, looking at, you know, a lot of detail on the underlying company, the market it operates in, the strength of its management team, and just do more sort of, um, you know, very detailed bottom-up work. When we're assessing a secondary transaction that might have, you know, a hundred companies in it, it's a little more difficult to, uh, you know, do very sure. detailed bottom-up work on every right. single company. So there we might tailor it a bit more to some of the larger exposures, take a slightly more portfolio level approach uh, to our assessment of, of evaluation. And then with the fund commitment, obviously, we're investing into you know, what, what would we refer to as a blind pool uh, commitment where there's no assets in the fund at the time we make the investment, uh, the money will get drawn down over a th- three to four year period. So there it's really about more of a, an assessment of the private equity fund or GP's historic track record, their strategy, you know, the quality of the team, um, whether there's been any turnover in the team, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, how good a partner they're going to be to work with in terms of our, our secondaries business and our co-investment business and providing deal flow across the entire platform. Those are important consider uh, considerations on assessing a primary manager. And when you're when you're looking at the GPs, the primary managers, um, you, you reference sort of all of the uh, different um, things that you, that you look at. Uh, I sort of equate this as probably something that uh, many financial advisors do across Canada. They're always evaluating evaluating other managers to see how they select securities. In most cases, it's going to be public market. In your case, it's private market. I'm curious when you're thinking about weighting those those characteristics. Uh, past performance clearly is going to be a good indication of, of skill in some ways. How do you think about past performance? How do you think about the team? Uh, and then how do you think also about collecting those secondary managers and creating this product that you're then offering to to others? Mm-hmm. Well, I wish there was a magic magic bullet uh, or answer to that. You know, a lot a lot of it is um, is just you know, I think a skill that's acquired over a twenty year twenty year history. 
you, you're right. You are ultimate, you know, as they say, past performance isn't necessarily, uh, you know, a perfect predictor of future performance. Sure. Um, so I think, I think, you know, we do a lot of digging um, when we're going through a private equity funds track record just around, you know, first of all, you know, are the investors that made the historic investments still there? Sure. Uh, are they going to be there, you know, for the next fund? How committed are they? How much... Um, um, of their own capital, are they are they putting into the fund? Uh, so called GP commitment. Um, we also do a lot of uh, detailed work around really trying to figure out how has the private equity fund made money historically. You know how much of it's come through underlying, uh, you know EBITDA growth or profitability growth or sales growth uh, versus how much of it's just you know come through. I don't I don't know if luck's the right word. Uh, but, you know, mul- multiple expansion, maybe mm-hmm. because, you know, interest rates went down so much right. and, you know, multiples went up. Um, so, you know, we, we, we do a lot of detailed digging and pulling apart of the track record to really ensure it's, uh, uh, you know, um, solid and frankly replicable uh, going, going forward. And how much do you consider, I guess, the specialties of the the GPs involved? I mean, when I compare private market investing to public market investing, clearly there's more levers that you can pull uh, helping to improve the business. You referenced that earlier on about um, the the sort of misnomer that most of it is clearing out thousands of people. While that may happen, most of it is incremental improvement on business or or working with the businesses. Uh, How much does that enter your calculation when you're evaluating these managers? Yeah, so I would say one common thread um, across everything we do and kind of all of our funds or products is I mentioned quality earlier. Mm-hmm. But it's also trying to build appropriately diversified portfolios. We feel quality and diversification are two of the best ways to, to mitigate risk. And so when we're um, making uh, or building out a portfolio of different GPs or, you know, uh, fund investments, we do want to, um, you know, ensure we have different types of, of managers in there. Um, so, you know, we, we might have some that specialize in technology, some that specialize in healthcare, obviously some that are more regionally focused in terms of the U.S., Canada versus Europe, some that, you know, create more value through top line uh, growth, some that focus more on cost optimate optimization, some that do more car routes, et cetera. So we are really trying to build a diversified portfolio so that they don't all sort of look alike. Right. And that, that sort of thread of trying to build appropriately diversified portfolios would be true, you know, across our secondaries fund as well, where we're really trying to monitor, you know, the risk return, um, you know, pacing, diversification um, as, as we build out our funds so that, you know, we try and build a fund that we think can perform well in, you know, different market environments um, and, and really, really withstand different macro challenges and still deliver what we're, uh, we're attempting to deliver. Great context on that. Uh, you referenced uh, earlier in the conversation that you wanted to talk about sort of the prevailing conditions today. What makes you excited about uh, the private equity markets in general? Uh, I think now is the time to do that. So why are you excited? And, and uh, why don't you paint the framework for the market that you're facing today? Yeah, probably most investment professionals would say at the moment, a very, very interesting slash challenging time to be, sure. be an investor. I, I, I think now for two years running, I've said this is the most challenging time 
we've uh, we've been in uh, or I've been in in terms of um, making make, making investment decisions, but equally um, a really interesting time to be an investor. So may, maybe just a step back on the private equity industry um, and contextualize a little bit. We we talked about it earlier, but we we've, we've seen tremendous growth. Um, and, um, you know, fundraising, a fundraising environment that was very strong, um, up until 2021 and 2021, a sort of record year for the industry in terms of the amount of capital that was raised. And since then, you know, it's, has become more challenging, um, on the capital raising side, a lot of, a lot, a lot more pressure on fundraising, uh, uh, for, you know, the typical private equity fund. Really owing to um, a couple things. One, you probably have heard this expression, the denominator effect. Or some people often talk about the numerator effect. I think they get intertwined. But the bottom line is we see a lot of institutional investors today, particularly ones who were early into the asset class, who you know are over-allocated. Mm-hmm. Their, their, their exposure to private equity um, as a percent of their entire fund is above target. Um, and so that's leading to some pressure uh, on um, capital allocators in terms of making new commitments. The other thing we're seeing right now is what I'll broadly call market illiquidity, where the value of exit, both both new deals, um, but probably a, even more so um, exit activity or uh, private equity funds selling existing businesses has really um, taken a pretty sharp uh, down downward correction. So in the first half of 2023, what we saw was exit activity down about 65% um, wow. uh, relative to 2022, comparing the first six months of this year versus last year. And last year was down on 2021. So a lot of pressure on um, capital allocators' uh, uh, cash flow models, uh, where you know the assumption had been made that a certain amount of cash would get returned uh, through underlying exit activity and distributed back to, to investors. And so that's at the backdrop for what is a very interesting, um, you know, market environment for us here at, at Northleaf, really across, um, you know, all our strategies. Um, our secondary strategy is probably the one that comes to mind first in the sense of the secondaries strategy or market is really about providing liquidity to the private equity asset class. And so with many um, capital allocators over allocated to the investment class now, uh, with private equity funds looking for ways to deliver liquidity back to their LPs, um, that's opened up a lot of opportunity for the secondaries industry and really led to, you know, uh, some very strong deal flow. Um, across really all types of secondaries transactions. So, you know, I like to say private equity is is in long-term secular growth, mm-hmm. but it is a very cyclical industry. Sure. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, that cyclicality can really work to, to um, investors' advantages if they have a kind of proven, um, you know, strategy that's very adaptable uh, and can respond to these these market these market conditions. Um, even for our primaries business, just to mention that, I mean we're we're, we're seeing you know uh, more access to heavily oversubscribed funds that used to be hard to get into. 
They're now easier to get into in some cases. Um, and our co-investment or direct investing program uh, is also finding that you know private equity funds are a bit more nervous about raising their next fund right now, hmm. trying to stretch out their 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 existing um, you know dry powder or capacity a bit longer, which is which basically means you know in some transactions rather than put the whole thing into their fund. Uh, they will look for co-investors, um, you know, to sell down some of the exposure to, right. um, as a way to kind of pro- pro- prolong their, uh, you know, their, their their existing dry powder. So challenging market for those that are within it. But if you're in the spot where you're buying uh, private equity, uh, where you're participating in the deals and you have capital, sounds like quite a compelling entry point. I'm curious on on the uh, on I guess all three of the the different ways that you can implement private equity, but particularly secondaries. What kind of discounts are you seeing? What kind of selling pressure are these people uh, under, and and do you get paid for that effectively? It's probably one of the most common questions we get. Um, it's a good question. It's certainly one of the most common ones. I will preface it by saying that although. It is useful, and, and we do look at the kind of optical discounts to the most recent kind of valuation or reference NAV, as it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really, when we're pricing these portfolios, it really is more about you know modeling out the cash flows and, and and trying to work out you know what is the appropriate you know we use the word intrinsic value on the portfolio. Sure. And then we'll often kind of compare that to what does that mean in terms of a in term in, in terms of a discount to the the kind of reference date at, at NAV, the net asset value. But to answer your question, um, what we saw sort of towards the tail end of last year and into early 2023 were discounts on, you know, high quality mid-market portfolios in the kind of 15 to 20% range. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we were able to really, really take advantage of that and um, execute some interesting transactions. And I think as the macro, you know, the the the, the recession, the long anticipated recession, uh, didn't seem to be coming coming to to, to, to fruition, at least not near term. Uh, the um, public markets obviously bounced back. Um, we saw pricing starting to drift up, probably into the high eighties, closer to ninety okay. percent of of reference date net asset value, and that's kind of where where we are today. So, you know, still some very interesting discounts and, and opportunities out there, but pricing has moved up a little bit. And maybe uh, my final question, uh, as you look forward, I think one of the uh, largest macro changes in the environment is certainly the base level of interest rates uh, is uh, much higher than it has been for many years and expected to remain higher for many years. Um, and we're not likely to get back to that sort of zero to two percent. Um Private equity notoriously uses a lot of leverage uh, within within that uh, structure, uh, historically or typically does. Um, what kind of impact do you think these higher rates are going to have on the future performance of, of private equity as an asset class? So I think what we're going to see is more polarization or bifurcation in returns. I think one of the challenges, frankly, over the last, you know, um, seven, eight years specifically has been, you know, I won't say it's been easy to make money, but low interest rates, zero interest rates has really blurred the concept of risk. Right. And um, it's been very difficult to, you know, work out, um, you know, who's good versus who's average. Um, right. Because a lot of people have made money by, frankly, 
you know, or some people, I should say, have made money by frankly not doing a lot with the assets um, when they're acquired um, because you're able to buy something at 10 times. Um, you know, it could have fairly modest performance and probably sell it at 12 times a few sure. years later and do well. And that game is over. Um, at least for the next three to five years, it would appear it's going to be much more now back to, and I think you asked the question earlier, when we're assess- assessing GPs or private equity funds, much more back to kind of who's creating real value hmm. in, in underlying portfolio companies and who has developed, you know, the skill set to work intensively uh, alongside management teams to really drive profitability growth. And so I think what, what we're likely to see over the next few years is, you know, more bifurcation in returns where we, 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 we really see what managers uh, are on the right side of that value creation equation and, and, and which ones maybe, may, maybe are a little more mediocre. Um, and frankly, I think that's, you know, as an investor, I think that's a much more interesting environment to be investing in. And I think that probably plays very well to our strengths here at Northleaf because we have been doing this for 20 years. And, you know, I think we've developed a lot of pattern recognition over those two decades for kind of working out what quality really looks like. That makes a lot of sense. And what a great note to end on leveraging your experience to navigate today's environment and go for distribution of outcomes likely to, to increase even further. So Shane, I want to thank you for spending so much time with me. Very generous and great to have you on. It's been great. Thanks very much. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.